Well, June is one in Christ month here for us at Big Valley Grace, something that uh, we started last year, and last week was our first week of the month. And I'm really thrilled tonight to introduce somebody to you that I really just met tonight, but I feel like I've known him a while. And the reason I feel that is because I've driven by his church basically every day that I come to church here, so that's usually pretty close to six or seven days a week. And uh, tonight, uh, we're going to meet Randy Balling, and I want to introduce his family to you. We have his wife, Christine, down here, and three kids, Megan, Logan, and Ashlyn. Is that correct? Did I get them all right? Well, listen, let's give them a Big Valley welcome, would you? Come on up, Randy. You know, as I've driven by Randy's church, which is the well out on Crow's, Land Crow's Landing, Claws Road, I know what streets I drive down, at least sometimes I do. And uh, for four, four years I've driven by his church, and I saw just a few cars out there, and over the years I see cars everywhere out there now. And so Randy, Lord bless you, we're yeah, so glad that you're you here so with much. us tonight. Thank you so right. much, Rick, thank you, thank you. I, I just have to say I'm so excited and delighted to be here. Thank you so much, Rick. Thank you, Big Valley Grace, for making me feel right at home. I actually brought a little bit of our church home with me tonight. We've got some Weltonians, as we like to call them, right down here in the front row. So let them know where you're at, guys. <laughs> so nice to have you here, guys. Thanks for coming out. And thank you for having me, Big Valley Grace. Uh, I want to be a fun dad, too. And so how many of you would like to say, I got my kids right here in the front row, how many of you would like to see if my paper airplane can go farther than Rick's? Huh? How many would like to see that? Okay, so are you ready, kids? Are you ready? Here we go. Ah. Yikes, well, let's hope the sermon flies better than the airplane did, huh? Hey, I want to invite you to turn to your Bibles to John chapter 4. We're going to be in verses 1 to 26 and 39 to 41. You can open up your iPads, your iPhones, however you get to your Bible. We'll be in John 4. Um, I'm just uh, excited about what God is doing already in this one series. I uh, listened back and heard Mike Moore teach last weekend, and uh, I thought... It's just like God to have me teach on Father's Day because if you remember, Mike was talking about how difficult it is to find even a, you know, a, a mustard seed of faith sometimes. And, uh, and, and I thought about that because, because for my wife and I, uh, Father's Day and Mother's Day for many years were one of the hardest days for us to find any faith. Because when we, about four years into marriage, wanted to have kids so badly, we prayed and we prayed and we could not have children. And the answer that God gave us over and over again was not pregnant, not pregnant, not pregnant. And over and over again we, we, we tried and we prayed, but no answer it seemed from God, at least not the answer that we wanted. And, uh, and, you know, Mike was talking about the people who said to God, God, where are you? And that's how we felt, like, God, where are you? Just in the midst of our pain. And, and you know, if only we could understand what God is doing when he's doing it when we're in the valleys. But, of course, usually we can't, and that's why it's called faith. And the more we struggled with infertility, it seemed like the more people would come to us with these kind of lame comments. And they probably meant well, but they'd say things like, boy, my wife and I, all we have to do is look at each other and we get pregnant. 
And it was like, thank you very much. What do you have? The spiritual gift of discouragement, you know. And the clock just would, would click, tick on and on and on. And uh, eventually we decided we'd try a course of treatments to try and get pregnant. And about three years into that, uh, it landed my wife in an emergency room. And I, I never forget, just wondering if she was even going to make it out of that. She came out of that, but the end result was we decided we we're going to give up what the doctors told us we needed to do, and we're going to just change uh, our focus to something that was less stressful, like planting a new church. <laughs> you see, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. And uh, so we started uh, in Southern California, planted our, our first church, and we said, we're going to just put everything in God's hand. We're just going to surrender it. Doctors said, you're crazy. You'll never have kids without our help. We said, that's okay. We're going to just focus on God's work. And so we stopped all treatments. And when you should know it, five days before we held our very first service at our very first church plant in Southern California, we found out we're pregnant. Bam, we're pregnant. Now, that's the one that says not pregnant. That was earlier. This one should say, pregnant, yeah, God. And so what an amazing day that was because we, we celebrated the birth of the baby church and, and the imminent birth of our, our firstborn child, Megan, who's, who's here today. And of course, uh, not knowing if we could catch lightning in a bottle a second time, we just let nature take its course, and bam, 10 months later, we're pregnant with our son, Logan, who's here. He was born early. He was a preemie. And uh, after what we went through, that roller coaster of our faith and testing of our faith, we said, you know, I think it's time for a little birth control. And uh, God, we're not ready for any more kids. 11 months later, bam! It's at this point we went back to our church in Southern California and said, would you stop praying for us? We can't handle any more blessings. So fast forward to 2009. Back in 2009, we got called by God to come up here to Modesto to plant a new church off of Claus Road, right on the edge of the city, surrounded by cornfields. In fact, our friends in Southern California told us, you don't want to go to Modesto. Nothing up there but a bunch of cows, crops, and crime. And we get up to the church surrounded by cows on one side and corn on the other and crime all around. And so we moved up here, and uh, man, it was just a tough the first year. I mean, we were just totally out on faith. Uh, we had this little building. I've got a picture I want to show you of my wife looking at the building the first time. You see, maybe you can't see the look on her face, but I love this picture. It's like she's saying, Lord, what exactly did you get us into? There's just stuff all over the floor. The place is kind of a dump. When we got there, it was termite infested. You can almost stick your foot through the floorboards. I'm holding a Bible study with complete strangers in the living room that I've only known a few months People are breaking into the church building. We didn't even have an alarm system. There's prostitution going on in the parking lots. And people are calling with some crazy calls because they're upset because they got an invitation to church on their door and whatnot. And right about this time, I get a phone call from some guy who calls me out of the blue and says, hello, my name's Rick Countryman. <laughs> Now you have to understand, I was new to the area. I'd never heard the name before. He said, my name's Rick Countryman. And I'm thinking, yeah, forgive me, but I was a little bit cynical at this point. And then I'm thinking, yeah, right. I moved to the country, and now I'm getting a call from the country man. <laughs> Am I being punked? <laughs> and, he, and I said, what can I do for you, Mr. Country Man? 
And he said, well, my name's Rick Countryman, and I'm a pastor of a church here, and I just wanted to welcome you to town, and I want you to know I drive by your church almost every day, and I'm praying for you. He said, you're a pastor? Pastor Countryman? He goes, yes, and I'm praying for you, and if you ever need anything, let me know. And he hung up the phone, and I hung up the phone, and went right to my computer and looked up you guys. <laughs> is this for real? By God, there is a big church called Big Valley. With a pastor named Rick Countryman, and his thousands of people, and I'm so glad he didn't stop praying. And I want to thank Pastor Rick publicly, and I want to thank you all for praying, for praying for the well. We've watched, as Rick mentioned earlier, the little church of 10 people in the living room grow to a thriving church of around 400 people on average attendance, and people come into Christ, and <laughs> over... Over 700 people last Easter, and it just blows my mind what God is doing. And so, unlike what we told our first church in Southern California when we, couldn't, we wanted to stop having kids, we say to you, please don't stop praying for us. We want to have baby churches someday. Please pray for us all the time. In fact, pray for all the churches that you pass by. Now, your pastor, what he did is really he stepped out that day. He didn't know me. He didn't know anything about our church. He just said, I'm praying for you. He stepped out, not as the mega church man that you know, but just as one guy in one church making a winning difference by praying. So really, that's the center of my message. The, the, the main theme is just, what would it look like if one person from one church said, I'm going to choose to make a winning difference? And I want to begin by asking you to think of one person in your life that's hard to love. And if you would be so bold as maybe put their name on your notes. Now, if it's your spouse and they're sitting next to you, there's a little discretion. Okay? <laughs> you think somebody might see this, you know, you just say that nerd that I have to work with or something like that, okay? God knows. But put their name down on the paper. And uh, I want to ask you another question. What are the barriers that are keeping you from loving that person? In this story of Jesus meeting a Samaritan woman at the well, we're going to see there are many barriers of, to love. But nonetheless, his love broke through those barriers. So pick it up with me. John chapter 4, we're going to begin in verse 1. It says, The Pharisees heard that Jesus was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. When the Lord learned of this, he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. You ever felt tired from your journey? It was about the sixth hour when a Samaritan woman came to draw water. Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. So he's talking about spiritual water. She's thinking about physical water. Verse 11, Sir, the woman said, You have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself and as did also his sons and his flocks and herds? 
Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up into eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you've had five husbands, and the man that you now have, he's not your husband. What you have said is actually quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim the place where we should worship is Jerusalem. Jesus declared, believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. And the woman said, I know that Messiah called the Christ is coming, and when he comes, he will explain everything to us. And when Jesus, then Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. From this passage, I want to just offer you four ways one person in one church can make a winning difference. And if you're keeping notes, here's the first thing. Step into what Jesus asks you to step into. Step into what Jesus asks you to step into, even if it makes you a little uncomfortable sometimes. See, Jesus, uh, he had a, what could have been considered a thriving ministry at this point in Judea. He had been baptizing more people than the great uh, John the Baptist. Uh, he could have sort of hit cruise control. Uh, he could have kind of been playing it safe and kind of let the crowd swell as his following swelled, lead him into greater importance and prominence and popularity. But John, the author of this gospel, I think he wants us to know something very important about Jesus, and that is that he wasn't one that always just played it safe. He's not a savior that always plays it safe. In verse 4 it says, he had to go through Samaria. To understand the gravity of this, we're going to put a little map up on the screen so you can get a feel for what that meant. Palestine's about 120 miles from the southern tip to the northern tip. To get to Samaria would mean that he would have to walk 42 miles by foot and then up another 300 feet to talk to this Samaritan woman. He literally stepped out and stepped into her presence. But then you need to understand the backdrop a little bit about who it was that he was talking to. See, the Samaritans were a mixed race of people who had intermarried with the Assyrians centuries before. And because of this, they were hated by the Jews. They were hated for their cultural mixing. They even had, the Samaritans had their own version of the Bible and they had their own temple. And so what a typical Jew would do is completely avoid going through Samaria to get to Galilee. We'd go across the Jordan River, up along the east side and back across the river to get to Galilee. But Jesus had to go through Samaria. So he is uh, actually breaking three Jewish customs. Number one, he's speaking to a woman which was taboo at that time, especially for a holy man. Not only that, but she's a Samaritan woman. And thirdly, he's asking her for a drink, which to receive the drink would have made him unclean. And the Samaritan woman knows this. So she says to him, you are a Jew, I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? Like, what's wrong with you? Jews don't associate with Samaritans. It was one thing for Jesus to go through Samaria, that was controversial enough, but to risk crossing the cultural lines, 
to, when he was a holy man to speak to the Samaritan woman who was sexually compromised, this was downright scandalous. If it occurred today, you'd see pictures of this, you know, all over Facebook, and you'd see Twittering, and you'd see, you know, this on Epic Fell and places like that. But you know what? Jesus doesn't care. He knows if his disciples are ever going to one day change the world, they need to learn how to step out of their comfort zones and step courageously into situations that will take guts, grit, and grace. And since you don't know me, let me just throw out a little disclaimer. I'm all about accountability. I'm all about protecting our lives and our marriages and avoiding being in compromising situations. But here I think Jesus has something bigger he wants us all to understand, and it is simply that he will call us sometimes to step out of our comfort zones and step in to where he's asking us to step into. Recently, uh, at a pastor's retreat, a little luncheon, a couple of pastors were asking me about all these people that are coming to the well, that God's bringing to the well, and what our evangelistic strategies are. And it was sort of a curious question for me because we indeed have some strategies, but immediately I thought about the fact that, you know, without any, anybody stepping in, there would be no movement of God. I, I immediately thought about the number of people God has brought to the well who have just said, I'm going to step in, even if it means stepping out of my comfort zones. And some of those people are here today. Uh, Diana Hunter, our administrator, who, who steps in to volunteer full-time in our office. Dawn Standard, who gives away free groceries to 30 to 60 uh, families every single week. Chandra Looney, who leads an AA group in our community just so she can teach those people that Jesus is the real higher power. Uh, Bonnie Rodin, who teaches kids struggling with math how to do math, and, and now her tutoring ministry that she volunteers for is at the top of the public schools list for places to send your kids. Eric McClusaclack, who volunteered a couple weeks ago to lead a recovery group for porn addicts. And I can go on and on. There's story after story. And you have them in your church. People that have been serving here for, for years and years. People that keep stepping in and stepping out of their comfort zones. Whenever I, I think about this, I, I remember the story of Tony Campolo. Tony Campolo tells about a time when he was asked to be a guest speaker in Honolulu. And he had to fly from Philadelphia to Honolulu. If you've ever flown that far, you understand that there's jet lag and the time difference will have you waking up at like 3 o'clock in the morning as it did him. He said he woke up at 3 in the morning with a ravishing appetite, and so he decided he'd go out and look for something to eat. But even in Honolulu, he said everything was pretty much closed except for one little greasy spoon diner. He opened the door, and there was no booths in the place. It was a tiny little place. All there were, were was in this place was a few little stools next, uh, in front of a counter. He sits down on a stool. There's a big man across the counter named Harry who throws him a menu and says, what do you want? He said, I didn't want to open up the menu because it was covered in grease. And it was one of those things that if I opened it, something extraterrestrial was surely to crawl out of it. So he looked at Harry and he said, I'll have a cup of coffee and a donut. Harry pours him a cup of coffee, slams it down on the counter, and he does this with his hands, lifts the lid on the donut case, by hand picks up a donut, puts it on a plate, thrusts it in front of him. But he was starving, so he begins to eat his dirty donut and slurps his coffee when in walks through the back door eight to nine prostitutes that sit down on either side of him. 
said it was clear they were prostitutes by their conversation, and he said, I was just about to slip out of there. One of them named Agnes says out loud, hey, tomorrow's my birthday. I'm going to be 39 years old. Somebody on the other side of Tony Campolo said back to her, well, so what? It's your birthday. So what do you want us to do about it? You want us to throw you a party and make you a cake and sing happy birthday to you? And she said, no. Why do you have to be so mean? She says, look, nobody's ever thrown me a birthday party before. Why should it start now? Tony says, that was the moment he decided he was going to stay. So they all cleared out. Then he got in a conversation again with Harry across the counter. He said, hey, Harry, you know that, that lady, Agnes, does she come in here every night? He goes, yeah. Did you hear her say that it's going to be her birthday tomorrow? He said, yeah. He, he, he said, why do you want to know? <laughs> And Tony Campolo said, well, no, don't take me wrong. I've got an idea. Listen, what do you say when you throw Agnes a birthday party? Harry's smile goes on his face like a watermelon slice. He grabs his wife from the back room and says, hey, we're going to throw Agnes a birthday party. Tony says, great, I'll go get the cake. Harry says, no, 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 that's my thing in the cake. You know, Tony's like, oh, boy, okay. Well, I'll go get the crate paper. I'll get all the decorations. His husband and wife are in on this. They, he says, the next morning... They got there at 3 o'clock in the morning. Everything was decked out from front to back. The place is just decked out for a birthday party. Agnes walks in through the back doors at 3.15 on the dot, and they just break in saying, Happy birthday, Agnes! They said at that moment, her knees began to quake. They had to lead her over to a chair where she sat down, and they proceeded to sing happy birthday to her. Happy birthday to you, happy birthday to you, happy birthday, dear Agnes, happy birthday to you. And he said, tears just started streaming down her face. And, and Harry said, blow out the candles, blow out the candles. She was so upset she couldn't blow out the candles. So Harry blows out the candles and hands her a knife and says, cut the cake, Agnes, cut the cake, cut the cake. And she just sat there in silence and she looked up through her stream of tears and she said, Harry, if you don't mind, would it be okay if I didn't cut the cake right now? My mother lives just two doors down, and I'd love to just show her the cake. Would it be all right if I did that? I promise I'll be right back. And Harry said, well, sure, Agnes, that'd be all right. She took the cake, went out the door, the door closed, and it was so quiet you could hear a pin drop. Tony Campolo is sitting there. He said, I, I didn't know what to say exactly. I said the same thing I always say when I'm in situations like this. Maybe we ought to pray. <laughs> now what you need to know is the room is filled with prostitutes by now. And he said, it seems kind of weird looking back on it, but it was the right thing to do. And he prayed for all the men that had taken advantage of her and hurt her and wounded her. Usually, you know, this starts at like when they're just little kids. And he prayed that God would deliver her. And he said, amen. And Harry's standing there. And he looks at Tony. And he says, hey, Tony, you never told me you were some kind of a preacher. He says, look, what kind of a church do you pastor anyway? He said, in one of those moments when you, you have just the right thing to say, he looked back at him and he said, the kind of church that throws birthday parties for prostitutes at 3 o'clock in the morning. 
Don't you want to be that kind of church? Don't we want to be that kind of church where the Harrys can go to our church? We can as one person in one church says, I'm going to make a difference and step out of my comfort zones and step in where Jesus asked me to step in. After keeping notes, number two is simply this. Stay where Jesus calls you to stay. Stay where Jesus calls you to stay. A little caveat to what I said a minute ago where I said step in where Jesus asks you to step in. Sometimes God wants us to stay right where we are, but we just get a little too uncomfortable. And we jump ship way too soon when God is trying to work something into our lives because we're uncomfortable. And around here, we, we know about the importance of water, don't we? And here's Jesus. We see him wanting to offer this woman living water. You've heard the city motto, water, wealth, contentment, health. How about living water, help, salvation, and health? How's that for a city motto? That's what Jesus wants to give this Samaritan woman. That's what he wants to give all of us. But in order for that to happen, she's got to get honest with God. She's got to be willing to stay as she even kind of wrestles with her own sinful nature. So he says to her, everyone who drinks of this water is going to get thirsty again. I want to give you spiritual water that you'll never be spiritually thirsty again. And then she says, bring me that water. And he says to her, well, go get your husband and come back. I have no husband. Jesus says, you're right. Fact is, is you've had five husbands, and the guy that you're with right now, he's not your husband. You know, that's, that's quite true. And she says, well, sir, I can see you're a prophet. And she changes the subject. We'll look at that in a minute. But what amazes me about this is that she stays with Jesus. I mean, here, here's a woman who's been in relationship after relationship after relationship. I think you can build a reasonable case that she is a runner. That she's such a good at running that she's walking alone in the middle of the day at noon to draw water instead of early in the morning when the rest of the women would be getting water. She's so good at running that she's had five husbands with a guy. No, it's not her husband. She gets uncomfortable with somebody. She just runs. But not this time. Here's a Samaritan woman who says, there's something about this Jesus. And I'm going to stay. She's starting to believe this, that there's this living water that can change her life. Thank goodness she stayed. If she had gotten up, she would have missed out on the transforming power of the living water. If we're honest, how many of us have been tempted to leave church because the pastor said something from the Word of God that convicted us, that made us feel uncomfortable because if we're honest, it called out our sin. How many of us have been tempted to leave our churches because we've decided, well, the other church might be a little more comfortable for me. It might meet my needs a little bit better. Have we considered the message that sends to the community at large when we do that? Have we considered that we might just be sending a message to the rest of the world that says what Christianity is about is a bunch of comfort-seeking consumers who, if they're not comfortable, they just walk away and church shop. Do you know what sometimes church shopping is? It's church chopping. Because God called you to stay in that church and to grow, and you just chopped it off. You just chopped yourself off, and you'd hurt that church body. If we're going to be one church, we gotta, I wish we could just eradicate that, that phrase, church shopping. 
Because God doesn't want a church of consumers, but of commuters. Because God cares more about our character than our comfort. So big valley, big brother, let us be churches that don't just walk away because we get uncomfortable with the sin God's trying to convict in our lives so that we can grow. Let us not just be a flaky, feel-good fraternity. Let us be a family of God. Let us be a catalytic community of crusaders for Christ that stays in our churches, stays in ministry, even if it makes us uncomfortable. We follow a Savior who stays. Stayed with us all the way to the cross. And he keeps his promises. I heard a story about faithfulness I'll never forget. It's a story of David Reaver, a true story. David Reaver is a Vietnam vet. He was in Vietnam in 1969 when a phosphorus grenade blew off six inches away from his face, as you can see, badly distorting that one whole side of his face. <clears throat> After the ordeal, in an interview, he describes the moment when he was reunited with his young, at that time, young wife Brenda for the very first time. He's laying in the bed. He says, my wife Brenda walked straight up to me, right up to the bed, and without showing the slightest fear or horror or shock, she leaned over and she kissed me on what was left of my face. And she said, welcome home, Davy." He said, to understand what that meant, you have to understand that Davy is what she would call me when we were most intimate. She would call me Davy, and when she called me Davy at that moment, she was saying to me, in effect, you are still my man. I still love you. And he said, all I could say back to her was, I want you to know, I'm, I'm really sorry. And she said, well, Davy, what in the world are you sorry about? He said, I'm sorry that I will never be able to look good for you again. And she just smiled and she looked at him and she said, oh, Davy, you were never that good looking to begin with. <laughs> And he said, he said, that was the beginning of the deep healing that I needed in my heart. That my wife said, I'm going to be there for you. I'm going to stick by your side. I'm going to be faithful. I'm not going to just get out. I'm not going to just walk out because you look a little bit ugly. And isn't that true of Jesus? Isn't that how he loves us? And when the world around us see that we're a church, that we're churches, that we don't just throw in the towel because we get a little bit uncomfortable because some things have blown up in our face, they're going to see the church is not just a bunch of consumers looking for comfort, but there are people serious about character development. We've got to be faithful. Number two, or three, if you're keeping notes, if we're going to be one person in one church that makes a winning difference, we've got to surrender what Jesus would have us surrender. Surrender what Jesus would have you surrender. So Jesus says to this woman, again, uh, go call your husband. Have him come back. Why, why would he do that? Why would he make her uncomfortable like that? Well, as we said, because he understands where her idols are. He wants to shift her trust from the idols to him. And so she, she's been surrendering to her sin over and over again. She now wants living water. She needs to get honest about that and shift her trust to him. And so... She's not quite ready to do that right away. And we see in the text here, because she changes the subject. She gets a little uncomfortable. She stays, but she's not quite re ready to surrender. And so she does what a lot of us do. She focuses on comparisons. 
She says, well, you guys say we should worship over here, but we Samaritans worship over here. Let's get into comparing different things. Let's get away from Jesus. Let's get into what I like to call uh, mechanics instead of dynamics, D-I-E. I don't want to die to myself. So let's look at the mechanics of all this and let's compare. And Jesus brings her back to the truth in verse 24. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. You're talking mechanics, but let's talk about dynamics, D-I-E. Let's talk about spirit in truth. Let's admit that you're spiritually thirsty. See, she's living in the same cycle of sin that we all get caught up in which starts off with a legitimate need, sometimes an illegitimate need or a want, but it's something we want to satisfy. And we've got a graph to demonstrate this. Starts off with something we want to satisfy. Instead of trusting Jesus and God to meet that need, we try to do it ourselves and we get into some sinful behavior to try and meet a need or wants. That usually releases some kind of neurochemical cocktail in our brains, and there's a surge after that that is very short-lived and followed by intense shame. And then we get into a season of suffering and silence. And if the enemy can get you there, he's got you right where he wants you. This cycle of now I'm suffering in silence, so I gotta satisfy a need, so I go back to my sin. So now, so now there's, a, there's that surge again, but it's short lived. So now there's the shame, and there's more suffering in silence, so I gotta go back to the sin, and around and around and around it goes. Listen, the key to breaking the cycle is surrender. It's not mechanics, it's dynamics. Jesus said it's about dynamics, and he's inviting her to do the same thing that he invites us to do to stop comparing ourselves to other people focus on mechanics and surrender to die to our sinful nature. I've got a, a limbo bar here to demonstrate this. You see, I think there's a lot of the world that applauds us for how low can you go living. And, uh, and the temptation is to say, well, you know, at least I'm not down here where this guy is. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm up here. But at least I'm not down there. And it's amazing how the world will applaud you for going down here. I remember when I was a kid, part of my testimony is that my dad's a recovered alcoholic. Um, and I think he, God, he's not the man that he once was. But I remember when I was a kid that uh, my parents would banish me and my siblings to our uh, a bedroom while they had the little parties out in the living room. One day we're in the bedroom and we hear cheering. And so I, I sneak out of the bedroom and I hear a clinking of glasses. It's my dad playing quarters with vodka don't look at me like you don't know what i'm talking about now and you all know and they're flipping the quarters in the shot glasses and they're and they're cheering my dad's name the more he drinks the drunker he gets they're cheering him and they're cheering him they're cheering him and it's just like how low can you go till somebody just passes out and it's scary how we applaud that but we're not really much better a lot of the time because we just say well at least i'm not there i mean i'm, I'm just i'm here you feel like, well, you know, I, I, I'm up here, and, and I, can, I can be okay with this. I mean, you know, I got my little sin on the weekends. So I can do it well. Ooh, wow, I'm getting a little old for that. <laughs> you say, at least I'm not down here. No, I'm not up here. But let me ask you something. Let's imagine that Jesus just showed up on the stage right now. And he said, you know what, guys? It's not a limbo bar at all. In fact, it's a high jump. 
I mean, I want to take you to higher places. I want to take you to higher level living, not way down there. That's not what I created you for. I've created you for so much more. And so we line up all the best jumpers because we want to please Jesus. And so we've got Javier, this Cuban guy who can do like eight feet, right? He'd be like the Billy Grahams in the spiritual world, okay? Set this record back in 1993. And we get all the best Christian believers up here, and we get all the people who say, okay, okay, we're going to try to do this on our own strength. And there's somebody that can actually get like close to Javier, like you know, your pastors and that kind of thing, and they get over the bar. And then Jesus says, do you mind if I give it a try? And all of a sudden, the bar starts elevating. Let's just say, for, for, bear with me for a moment. You can watch it go through the ceiling. You get your binoculars out. It's still going. It's rising higher and higher. higher. Jesus is standing here. You're like, what are you doing, Jesus? The bar is going all the way up into outer space. It's hanging out there by the moon. And Jesus says, okay, who'd like to give it a try? And you say to yourself, there's nobody who can measure up to that. Maybe I just belong to the how low can you go livers, man? I mean, that's impossible. Jesus says, oh yeah, watch this. And he goes up and up and up and you watch him and the cameras are on him. He goes up and up into space. He goes over the bar. He lands down on the ground gently like Superman. And he says, okay, who wants to take a turn? And you're just totally discouraged because you go, there's no way anyone can do that. And you look at Jesus and say, Jesus, there's no way I can do that. And Jesus sticks his hand out and he goes, congratulations, that's the right answer. But there is still a way. What's that, Jesus? He says, you can't do it, but if you'll just lean back and surrender to me, I'll take you there by my grace. So you lean back in his arms, and he attaches himself to you like two of those parachuters you see coming down, and you're going up, and you're getting nervous at first because you're flying, you see birds going by, you start singing songs like, oh no, don't ever let go, and you're flying through the space, and somehow miraculously you're still alive, and he touches down ever so gently, and you're just like, whoa, wow, that's amazing, that is incredible, and Jesus says that's the difference of a, between religion and someone who has a relationship with me. Amen. That's the difference that surrender can make. What do you need to surrender? I mean, I, I, there's salvation surrendering and then there's sanctification surrendering. For some of us, it's just we've been too busy. We've gotten away from Jesus. We've gotten away from surrender. We're getting so busy that we're running out of steam. We're burning out. Like one well-known youth pastor that I met was honest and transparent with me. He stepped out of youth ministry after years of fruitful ministry. I said, why did you do it? He said, if I'm honest, it's because I was becoming a machine. I was losing my heart. And many of you know exactly what that feels like. And it all comes back to surrender. The Samaritan woman, she chose to surrender. And then in verse 27, the disciples, they rejoined Jesus. And, and, uh, and then the Samaritan woman, it says in Scripture, she left in verse 28, left her water jar. She went back to town. She said to the people, come and see a man who told me everything that I've ever did, I've ever done. Could this be the Christ? And they came out of town and they made their way toward him. And many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I did, she said in verse 39. So number four, if you keep in notes, say what Jesus would have you say. Say what Jesus would have you say. Here's a woman who went back to a town that disenfranchised her, the very women that ostracized her, to the very men who had ogled her, but this time she had living water. This time, she had a power source to share what Jesus wanted her to share that she'd never known before. Have you considered that there's somebody in your life God has divinely appointed to your life because he wants you to share 
the good news of his grace with them. Look at that one person on your paper again. Look at that one person. Do you know nowhere in the Bible does God say that you're to change them? But he does say that you're to love them. And if you can't love them like a believer, then, you know, love them like a brother or sister. And if you can't love them like a brother or sister, love them like a neighbor. And if you can't love them like a neighbor, then love them like an enemy, because Jesus said to love even your enemies. And this is how the world will see that we're one. So when we break it down and choose to be that one person in one church making a winning difference with one person. Who is that one person? Have you considered that one point in your life you were that one person? Remember Chandra, the woman I talked about at the beginning of the message, who was leading an AA group so that she could tell people about uh, who the higher power really is? She was once a drug addict. She gave me permission to share this. She was once a drug addict. One time she was so up on drugs, she stayed up 14 nights in a row. Remember Bonnie, the woman I, I talked about who's doing the tutoring ministry twice a week for kids? She was raised in Russia where it was illegal to worship God. She didn't know God. She, she, she grew up thinking there is no God. She, she grew up thinking Americans maybe they didn't like Russians and, and now she's teaching American kids about God in her math class. Remember Eric, the guy that's leading the, the, the recovery group for, for porn addicts? He himself was once a porn addict. Remember Diana Hunter? The woman I, I said that, that she volunteers full-time hours at our church. Diana Hunter works so many hours, 80 hours plus a week. She had a major heart attack. She never had any time for serving God. She, she never made time for serving God. Today, she's serving full-time as a volunteer for God's church. We all were that person at one point in our lives. And I want to end with a video that I think demonstrates this way that Jesus takes us and remakes us and shapes us to be transformed people. It's called Together Team Hoyt. Check out the screens.
this thought. Your senior pastor, Rick Countryman, uh, he texted me while he was on vacation to let me know he's praying for this message. And, uh, I thanked him for the opportunity again, and he texted back, Randy, you're a good man because Jesus has made you that way. The person that's hard to love, do you believe that Jesus can make them better than they are today? I'll tell you what, I'm the guy, in that, I'm the kid in that wheelchair. What about you? And I just want to close in prayer that God would give us his strength to step in and step out of our comfort zones, to stay where he's called us to stay, to surrender what he's called us to surrender and say what he would have us say. Let's pray. God, we're just so moved by your amazing love that, God, you would step out of your comfort zone again and again, step into situations that are filled with borders and boundaries to make a point that you love people more than they could possibly imagine. Maybe there's somebody here today, Lord, who said, I, for the first time, I want to experience that love that you gave to the Samaritan woman. And if that's you, you can experience forgiveness of sin and the love of Christ simply by surrendering like you talked about in your heart to him. You might say, Jesus, thank you for your love. I invite you to come into my heart and forgive me of my sin. Make me into the kind of person that you want me to be. Help me to team up with you to become the person that you meant me to be. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thank we you. appreciate Randy tonight, everybody.